My name is Dennis Sheeran. And this is Raymond Steinmetz. And we are from the Instant Relevance Podcast. We are proud members of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to right now. Make sure you check out all of the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready, because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I've got a powerful episode for you. I'm talking with Dr. John Almerode. He's an author, he's an educator, he's an all-around amazing teacher and incredible trainer. And today we're talking about his book, Clarity for Learning, Five Essential Practices That Empower Students and Teachers. What an incredible tool. Great information today. You're going to love this one. Lots to learn. Thanks for being here. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Dr. John Almerode, a best-selling author, has worked with schools, classrooms, and teachers all over the world. He has presented locally, nationally, and internationally on the application of the science of learning to the classroom, school, and home environments. He has worked with hundreds of school districts and thousands of teachers in the U.S., Australia, Canada, England, Saudi Arabia, Scotland, South Korea, and Thailand. In addition to devoting his time to pre-K through 12 schools and classrooms, he is an associate professor in the Department of Early Elementary and Reading Education. He's co-director of James Madison University's Center for STEM Education and Outreach and director of the Content Teaching Academy. In 2015, John was awarded the inaugural Sarah Mill Luck Endowed Professorship. He continues to work with pre-service teachers and actively pursues his research interests, including the science of learning, the design and measurement of classroom environments that promote student engagement and learning. The work of John and his colleagues has been presented to the United States Congress, Virginia Senate, at the United States Department of Education, as well as the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. John began his career in Augusta County, Virginia, teaching mathematics and science to a wide range of students. Since then, John has authored multiple articles, reports, book chapters, and nine books, including Captivate, Activate, and Invigorate the Student Brain in Science and Math, Grades 6 through 12 with Ann Miller, which I got to tell you, I love the title. <laughs> I love it. It's love a mouthful. It. It's, it's a mouthful. Another book, From Snorkelers to Scuba Divers with Ann Miller, which, once again, you got some unique titles here. I love this. And, <laughs> and Visible Learning for Science with Doug Fisher, Nancy Fry, and John Hattie in 2018, as well as Teaching Mathematics in the Visible Learning Classroom, grades 6 through 8, and an assortment of others like Teaching Mathematics in the Visible Learning Classroom, grades 9 through 12. Additionally, Teaching Mathematics in the Visible Learning Classroom, grades K through 12, and Teaching Mathematics in the Visible Learning Classroom, grades 3 through 5. He is also the past co-editor of the Teacher Educators Journal. Most recently, John and his colleagues have developed a new framework for developing, implementing, and sustaining professional learning communities known as PLC+. John lives in Waynesboro, Virginia with his wife, Danielle, a fellow ed educator, their two children, Tessa and Jackson, and Labrador, Labra Labrador Retrievers. Boy, you say that three times fast, right? Um, Angel, <laughs> Forrest, and Bella. John, welcome to the show, and uh, say hi to everyone. Hi, everybody. Well, I'm glad to have you here, and I'm going to ask you this question, even though it's going to seem like deja vu. <laughs> yeah. So you got three Labrador Retrievers, man. They're not they're not just little dogs, right? That's right, and uh, we're blessed to have the space for that, um, the yard for that, um, and what they all share in common 
um, is probably more important than the, than the fact that there are three of them. And that is they're all rescue dogs. Um, and they each have their own unique differences as a result of their previous owner or the previous situation uh, in which we found them. Uh, one of them has cerebral palsy or what is equivalent to doggy CP, uh, known as cerebellar hypoplasia. So I have an 80 pound chocolate lab that has the symptoms of, of, of cerebral palsy. And so it makes for an interesting house. They love the kids. They sleep in the kids' bedrooms. Um, they do not uh, go far from my children. Uh, that's their, their litter mates. And uh, so it's, it makes for an active and a fun house. I can imagine. That's, uh, well, that's so cool that you, you have rescue animals. That's, uh, that's neat that you're able to do that, and including taking in one who needs a lot of extra special attention and care. Uh, Absolutely. Very cool. So all the power to you. Now, now your, your wife's also an educator? Uh, she is. Uh, she uh, elementary, uh, pre-K through five physical education. Um, and then I'm very, very proud of her. She just finished her doctorate in kinesiology, focusing on PE pedagogy, um, but works in the private sector, um, working with individuals on their fitness plans, their nutrition plans, um, and, and their goals there. So she, she still teaches, but she works with different clientele. She works with adult learners. Gotcha. So yeah, we're all educators in this house. Very cool. Very cool. So the, uh, you know, and it's just kind of neat when I hear that, cause I always wonder what that type of the, the table talk can be like. So, you know, you're sitting down at dinner and, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> the kids get tired of, uh, of the 20 questions about, you know, what are you learning? Why are you learning it? How do you know you're successful, which we're going to get to in this conversation? <laughs> um, you know, the good news is, is that we live in the city, um, that we both have worked in, um, and that's where our children go to school. And so there's a familiarity with the schools and the teachers. And so it, it is, we're just normal parents. Awesome. We're just normal parents. <laughs> awesome. I, I was just wondering about that as talking about your kids going, okay, mom and dad, let's wait a second. This is chapter two, isn't it? We, <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, before we start talking about Clarity for Learning, which is an amazing book, I, I have to tell everyone this story because I first got to meet you at a kickoff in the area where... Uh, where I am, I, as a regional uh, service agency, we, we create some uh, kickoffs for the new school year. And when I talked with Corin about wanting to bring somebody who could talk about John Hattie's work and the idea about here's some specific strategies you should use in the classroom. This is why, this is how, and this is, um, you know, more importantly, uh, most importantly, um, what, you know, what the impact is. And, uh, and I said, I really need somebody who's engaging because the person I had for the kickoff the year before, they, they just loved to death and they, they couldn't believe the energy that was happening there. And I'm on a roll because I'm like, this is good stuff because they're, 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 they're starting to look forward to my kickoffs. And, and I'm like, so you got to get me. So he says, oh, I got the guy for you. His name's John and you're going to enjoy him. And I said, just remember, don't let me down, man. Don't let me down. And John, man, he, you, he did, you did not disappoint. You were on fire. You had them eating out of your hands and they wanted, they wanted more and they can't wait to have you back here in our area. And I just can't thank you enough. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is, is speaking and presenting and training just something that comes naturally to you? Or is it something you've had to work on? How, how's that work for you? Uh, the answer, the answer to that one is actually both yes and no. Um, first of all, you have to have an audience and a group of individuals that are willing to engage in the learning. Um, 
And now, I, granted, the teacher does possess more the, of, of the responsibility of hooking learners, but it certainly works when you get an audience that, that not only is hooked in, but then they're willing to give and take with you. And, and, and your folks certainly are as equally as engaging, which made that day um, an awesome day. I, I loved my time uh, in South Georgia. Um, but yes and no to your original question. Um, no from the standpoint that I have had the opportunity to be uh, in the presence of, of excellent presenters and excellent researchers um, that have taken their time to help provide guidance, mentor, take me under their wing, if you will. And so from that perspective, I learned from them. Um, and then I also practice. Uh, if you walk by my house or drive by my house and I'm in the flower beds or mowing the yard or just out in the yard, you may catch me talking to myself because I'm rehearsing. <laughs> um, and I don't rehearse because it's some vain belief that I have to be uh, putting on a show 24-7. It's the idea that teachers have such limited time um, outside of the responsibilities that are expected of them by the school district, their schools, and in the classroom, that they really can't afford to have somebody get up in front of them and not deliver a clear, concise, um, and on-point message. Um, it's just dis And plus, it's disrespectful to not come in prepared, just as we expect them to come in prepared. Um, on the flip side, the yes part, it may come a little more um, naturally to me, and, and this is not a diagnosis, um, but it would probably be um, very little effort required to get me diagnosed with ADHD. And so <laughs> I remember what it was like sitting in seats. And so I try to make sure that the learning environment that I create is one that I myself could sit through and participate in. And so some of it is gut, and then some of it is very intentional, purposeful, and deliberate ways of, of of engaging learners. Well, you do that so awesome. And, uh, I mean, they, they just loved it. You had them up out of their seats. You had them up at the stage. You had them doing it all over the place and, uh, and just thoroughly engaged with what you're talking about. And, uh, they, I just can't say enough about it. And, and, and today's world, by the way, with your note about talking to yourself out in the flower beds, you know, most people are doing that. <laughs> Because they got some sort of speaker connected to them someplace, so you know, it's not as wild as it was about twenty years ago. If you're talking to yourself, but now you know it's like it's, everybody does it. <laughs> so that's reassuring, very reassuring. Just thought I'd say that to you. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> now, just because your neighbor's going to have you locked up this afternoon, I can't. <laughs> I can call you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you began your career as a math and science teacher. Do you have a? A story that's one of those stories that reminds you of why you became a teacher? You know, something that reminds you of what teaching's all about? Um, you know, again, it's, it's more of a yes or no answer there as well. I grew up in a family of educators, um, cousins, aunts, uncles, parents, grandparents. I mean, the list is long. I have educators all over my family. So I grew up in a culture of teaching and learning where being able to bring someone to some understanding or some skill development or some level of knowledge was valued. I mean, that, that's what we valued in our home, just as much as we valued those in the family that were doctors or nurses or pharmacists or um, those that worked at the local grocery store. Um, my father and his brothers grew up in the family grocery business. And so it was, um, it was valued. Uh, and so I walked in the door thinking maybe I'd like to be a teacher. And it wasn't until I got to third grade um, that my third grade teacher um, started to um, give me tasks that involved me teaching other students things that I was good at. And if I wasn't very good at it, she did not put me in that position. And so Mrs. Stump was the first one to say, you know, 
why don't you go explain to them what you're thinking? Um, and then as I progressed through, um, I met my sixth grade science teacher on back to school night, uh, Mrs. Cross. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a science teacher. She probably uh, single-handedly was the most powerful influence on me in terms of my teaching career. And then it just went up from there from um, a seventh grade teacher, Mrs. Snyder and Mrs. Klaus. I mean, I could name them off and describe specific events with you, but there was a little bit of genetics and then a whole lot of influence and mentoring. That's awesome. The, uh, so uh, does the family ever get together as a whole where you can all have that big teacher talk? I mean, that's, would that ever happen or is it? <laughs> It does. I always tell people and tease them. We don't have a kitty table at our family functions. We have the teacher and then the non-teacher table. Nice. nice. That's what I was um, wondering. <laughs> so that's how that works. And then there are times that we'll talk throughout the year. My cousin um, and I will communicate by text all the time. She'll send in a text that say, Hey, what do you think about this? Or I'll send her a text and ask her, you know, we've got this wild idea. How do you think this is going to go over? And so there's that kind of communication as well. Excellent. That's very cool. Thank you so much. So let's, let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about Clarity for Learning, Five Essential Practices that Empower Students and Teachers, 2018 by Corin. In the introduction, there's this statement. As you might expect, the greatest variance in student achievement is correlated with the contributions each learner brings to the classroom each and every day. However, the second largest contribution is the teacher. In other words, the teacher matters a lot. Could you talk about this? Um, absolutely. Uh, I use, um, I did, we didn't use it in the book. Um, Karen, I chose to do a different route with that, but I've used um, the metaphor before of seed and soil. Um, you know, the genetics, um, the, what the student shows up with matters a lot and no one ever tries to cover that up. And no one, I mean, I think sometimes we try to gloss over it in hopes that um, we can ignore certain uh, factors that are attributed to the student. But in doing that, we actually take away from the individuality of that student. And so uh, we're very honest in saying, look, who the student is matters a whole lot. That's the seed. But the environment we put them in is what really determines how that is expressed or what happens next. And so the teacher really designs and provides the soil in which those learners show up in. And, and that's the, that's the perspective. If you look at the data, so that's the metaphor. If you look at the data, the data says the same thing. The individual characteristics of the student, they do matter a lot. Uh, the next one in line is the effects of the teacher. Now this is significant for a couple of reasons. Number one is it means the individual in front of that room has the greatest amount of potential and promise in helping the learner in their seats meet their own potential and promise. And so we don't have to rely on things like, well, is it a special kind of school? Is it a magnet school? Is it a, and I'm going to name some names and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but is it a, a specialized school? Is it a magnet school? Is it an IB school? Is it a governor's school? Is it, we, we focus so much sometimes on the packaging. Is it new? Is it a school that was built in the 60s that hasn't been renovated? Are the walls blue? Does it have the latest technology? We have all these things that we run down the checklist for that we used from the outside looking in as ways to gauge quality learning environments that lead to quality learning outcomes. When in fact, the research says none of that matters. It's the individual in front of the room and the decisions that he or she makes about what's going on in that classroom trumps everything else. That's awesome because it's, you know, it, it, it's 
sad that, like you said, there are a lot of people who spend a lot of time trying to talk about all this other stuff and avoid talking about the teacher and that, that individual in the classroom and the decisions they make on a daily basis and those <laughs> interactions they have with the kids. And yet they'll talk about, I love what you mentioned, and are the walls blue? You know, there's, <laughs> there's a while everything had to be just certain colors. You know, it's like, whoa, okay, so – um, yeah, that's good stuff there. I, I, and I appreciate that. So let's, let's start talking about some other specific things in clarity for learning early in clarity for learning. This statement appears clarity in teaching and learning is the one thing that makes a significant impact on the growth and learning for students in any classroom. So with that, what is clarity for learning and why does it make such a huge difference? Yeah, so clarity for learning is, ex is exactly uh, what the word, what you think the word means. Um, are we clear about what it is students are supposed to learn, um, why they're supposed to learn it, and what successful learning looks like? And that clarity doesn't just apply to the learner, it applies to the teacher. Do I as a teacher know exactly what my students are supposed to learn, why they're supposed to learn it, and what that success looks like? As an administrator, do I know um, do I have clarity about what it is I want the children in my building to be learning and what the teachers in the building are looking for learners to, to engage in uh, during their time in that school? So it goes at, at all levels of education. So when I say clarity for learning, I, I don't mean to be cliche with it, but it, it is it clear about what's happening. And so why is it so important comes right from that definition. You can't hit a target that you don't know exists. You can't reach goals that you're not clear on what they are. And the same thing applies to, to students. They can't really learn something if they don't know what it is they're supposed to learn. And they can't really achieve success if they don't know what the benchmark is, if they don't know what success actually looks like. And so clarity involves uh, tying those ideas together and then translating it into what it looks like in the classroom from both the teacher's perspective as well as the student's perspective and then what the administrators or our instructional leaders can do to support it. That's great stuff. I, you know, it, this is going to sound really dumb what I'm about to say, but <laughs> it makes me think about, uh, I've tried to uh, learn how to play uh, some, uh, some games with my sons where they try to teach me how to use the uh, there's two types. Some of them are video based and some of them are just the board playing games. I play role playing games, all kinds of stuff. You know, the ones that have these huge <laughs> books for instructions. And I start going, OK, what are we trying to do here? <laughs> and, yeah. And that's it, exactly what you're making me think of right now, which it, at some point then I go, oh, OK, I don't get this. <laughs> Yeah, it makes it very hard. I mean, and, and the example I've started to use lately is that my daughter is taking piano lessons. And so as a way to support that, I thought, well, you know what? I'll teach myself to play the piano. I'll just pull it up on YouTube or Google. This will be no problem at all. Yeah, but there's a clarity problem. Um, because if I don't understand what it is I'm supposed to be doing, I can only imitate the keystrokes. But if I don't know the what, the why, and the end result of how this fits into a full piece of music, then I'm just memorizing keystrokes, which is what we see in classrooms. If I don't know why I'm learning this particular math concept, then I'm more likely later on down the road to say, can I please have a formula sheet? Or try to just match formulas or try to memorize facts in social studies or try to win at jeopardy in science. Or, I mean, they're just all these examples that, that come as a result of lack of clarity. 
And we probably could have addressed those issues sooner if we'd have been a little bit better about what it is, why, and, and how success was going to appear in the end. That's so powerful. I mean, cause I, I can think of any number of things that I've had those. It, it explains why I struggled to even right. know what it was I was doing and you didn't end up giving up. You know, it's like, well, okay. It's, uh, um, that's, it, it, that's awesome. Thank you. It, you know, one of the things that I like about your book, Clarity for Learning, is that, you know, many of the chapters begin with a segment called, and by the way, listeners, you're going to hear me refer to some of the different formatting of the book because it it is very, it, it gives a lot of examples, it gives a lot of help, it give, it's very practical because it, it gives you the explanations and then it gives you the tools to help you um, start using it in the classroom, using the, the concepts. So, you know, one of the things that uh, happens is you have a segment at many of the begin at the beginning of many of the chapters called "Readers Learning Intention," and the chapters have another segment often that says "Reflection, Next Steps, and Evidence." Why were these important to include? So, so again, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful to anybody, but practicing what we preach um, is a big challenge in the field of education, um, and I can speak personally to that. Uh, as, an, as a university faculty member, where a lot of times what we do in the College of Education is tell them what effective practices are, but we don't do them ourselves as college <laughs> faculty. And it just cracks me up when, when College of Ed faculty don't use the evidence-based practices they're teaching their students about. So that's a, a long answer to to, to your question, but the point was to model what this might look like. If we expect teachers to have clear learning intentions and success criteria for their learners, then we're going to provide those for you at the beginning of the chapter so you know exactly what it is you're, we expect you to get out of chapter two, why we think it's important, and what you will be able to do with it when you're done with chapter two. And then the reflection piece is literally the closure part. Did we get there? And where are the gaps in your learning? Uh, one of the other things about clarity that, uh, that rises to the top if we operate in very clear classrooms is that we start to identify the gaps in where learners are and where we want them to be much more efficiently and effectively, which means we can close them more efficiently and effectively. If we don't have clarity, then often we don't know whether the students are with us or not with us because we don't know what with us or not with us actually looks like. And so the book was designed to model some of the very things that we were talking about in the narrative, um, as well as provide examples so that you could see what it might look like in a kindergarten classroom and not have to translate that on your own without some context. Thank you. That it's so awesome. And it sounds like, you know, it's, I don't know if this is something that sometimes somebody might say, well, I understand, I get this. And, you know, one of the things that I like is that in the, just in the very beginning of the book, there's an example of, you know, teacher A and teacher B type thing. And uh, where the teacher B actually thinks that he's doing what <laughs> is suggested, but really isn't. And mm -hmm. I like that. Um, and those teachers, um, full confession, um, those are based on real classrooms. Um, but in both situations, the teachers hit it out of the park. And so we asked them if we could use them as non-examples, even though every day in their classroom, they are <laughs> exemplary in this work. And, and that tends to be my MO. I find a teacher that is a master at some concept. And I say, look, I need a non-example. Do you mind if I take your great example and tear it up? And they normally chuckle and laugh and they said, all right, fine, sure. And so that's what happened. In, in both of those cases, those teachers are masters. I just asked if I could shred one of them um, <laughs> and get a good laugh out of it. 
<laughs> nice, nice. That's that's interesting knowing that because I I was just assuming that uh, the names you know the, the the names have been changed to protect the innocent that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. The only time the only time we avoid any kind of real names is if it was a bad example and it really was a bad example, and then at that point you'll have a lot of Mister Smiths or Mister Joneses pop gotcha. up on the screen um, because who it didn't go well, and we weren't going to try to doctor it. We needed to point it out and then hide the identity. Gotcha. <laughs> The, uh, that's funny because that's uh, um, that's neat knowing that. I don't know how else to say that because I I just assumed that it was you know these are just completely made up names and if I look closely there's probably some connection to like Gilligan's Island or something and I didn't realize. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> you know I, you know that's not a bad idea. I should have done that with snorkelers and scuba divers and to see which readers knew enough about things like the Love Boat yes. and Gilligan's Island. There you go. And, that would have been an, yeah, the editors probably wouldn't have gone for that, but that's all right. <laughs> By the way, I'm a little concerned. Uh, is your like your mailman running around your yard right now away from the dogs? <laughs> I, I don't know. That's the, that's actually the dog that um, has cerebral palsy. Oh, no. He, he sometimes just barks because he knows the kids are inside and he's outside. So it's hard to tell what's going on. I, I hope gotcha. it doesn't interfere too much with the recording. <laughs> oh, no, it doesn't. It actually adds a nice, um, ambiance to the <laughs> the conversation Excellent. so the uh um so, so anyway let's you know let's let's get even more specific here in into some of what you talk about in the book one of the things that uh, one of the chapters gets into is it calls it the clarity problem can you discuss what the clarity problem is yeah that actually came um towards the end of the writing process Ooh. um Kara Vandis and I um spent a lot of time in conversation and then with the schools uh, that we work with and are illustrated in the book, just constant conversation to try to get this book right. Um, it took a very long time to write this book, longer than any book I've ever written. Um, and part of it was because we wanted to get it right. And every time we would encounter a new situation, we had to step back and say, no, wait a minute, where, where does this fit? Um, because we knew that this book was coming out as well as Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry's Clarity Playbook, um, and they were meant to be complementary and go together, but we knew, both groups of authors knew we had to get it right. Um, th there was just no room for error when it came to Clarity. And one day we were putting down data, we were looking through examples where Clarity was missing. And I was in conversation with a local uh, assistant superintendent and her directors of instruction, secondary and elementary, and we were kind of talking about it and kicking it around. And finally, we noticed a pattern in all of the classrooms that did not have clarity for learning. They fell into the same five traps. And we kept looking and these same five traps kept coming up. Um, they were classrooms that were activity driven and not learning driven. Ooh, look, I found this cool activity on Pinterest. I want to do it on Tuesday. I'll find a way to make it fit. Or they would have um, a problem with learning being viewed as discrete segments with no coherence across those segments. Monday was different from Tuesday, which was different from Wednesday, and Wednesday wasn't related to Tuesday. Uh, another example of this uh, was uh, data with no purpose. So they would have all this data and they would show up to their PLCs or they would show up to their data meetings and they would have binders, as Doug Reeve says, binders full of data <laughs> and not a single piece of that data gave them any insight into the learning in their classrooms. Um, and so those are just three examples of, of that group 
of clusters that all of these classrooms seem to have if they missed clarity. And so that last, that first chapter on the clarity problem came at the end once we had sorted through all the data and stumbled upon this pattern that had emerged when you don't have clarity. And what's fascinating is that you can read that chapter. I could read that chapter after we finish this podcast and go through it and go, been there, been there, been there, been there. Yes, that was me. Yes, that was me. We all can relate to those. I was amazed it took us so long to discover it because it's basically the story of every teacher's life at some point in their career. It really is. I, I totally agree with you because as you're reading it, it's like, I mean, that's why I wanted, I'm just like, oh, we got to talk about this because it's, you know, you, you see yourself, if you're honest, you're seeing yourself in there and you're seeing, you're probably yeah. seeing the specific moments and the different times and the different uh, years or whatever it is that you were working on at that time with your, your classes. So it's good stuff. The, uh, you know, could you, sh there's in here, what happens is there's a, uh, there's a chart that's created, a flow chart, and it refers to the cycle or steps of clarity. Can you just kind of describe that a little bit? And, and then we'll uh, go from there to kind of talk about some of the, the parts. Yeah, we use the, the flow chart and the cycle um, description to avoid um, a template. Because um, you and I both know that if we're not careful in education, when something has a chart, uh, it often has its contents erased and then it's distributed as a worksheet to be done during planning. What? What? <laughs> so, uh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So that's, and then that's where the binders full of data come from. Yes, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> um, speaking of not having clarity, you're filling out these worksheets during planning and you still don't have any idea what you're doing on Tuesday. That was the motivation. <laughs> gotcha. uh, the motivation, if you see yourself having a clarity problem uh, from the previous, that previous discussion, or you want to know how to start the process for getting clarity. Um, how could we help teachers understand the internal thought processes that might support them? Um, and, and I say might because we all have our own way of doing things. And so there may be another way you go about it. But this process seemed to be consistent across all of the schools uh, with which we work. Um, and so out came that cycle. And we're very careful to say, look, you're going to be jumping back and forth um, from step and I don't even like to use the word step from the first part of the cycle to the back part, because once you get feedback and, and feedback's part of it, then that feedback may actually kick you back to gaining clarity because the feedback told you, Oh, they can do this, but they can't do that. Is that what the standard expects of them? And so I jump back to gaining clarity to make sure I'm really clear that it's halves, fourths, eighths, and sixths They have to know in second grade and not thirds, fifths, and sevenths if you have standards that are that specific. Um, and when you use something like the Common Core, the Common Core provides very specific guidelines on what they need to know, understand, and be able to do. And so you often have to go back and forth to work it out. So it's a cycle, but it's also organic in nature. And we wanted to provide teachers and administrators with a way to think about it so that when we, again, going back to the earlier part of our discussion, when we talk about the person that's in front of the room making the decisions, what kind of internal dialogue leads that individual to make the best decisions at the best time with the right content for the right students when it comes to clarity? It's so powerful. It's, you know, and by the way, I do have to say that you are so right. It's the best, if you could stay away from step one, step two, step three, or whatever, you know, because otherwise you are going to see it at the beginning of the front of the notebook. <laughs> and everyone's going to have to, you know, there will be a test on this. And uh, the next 
faculty meeting, we'll be expected to uh, be able to cite the. <laughs> so, yeah. but, uh, good stuff. The uh, you know one of the things that I want to make sure that I I get into here is that you know there's so many things that I like about the book Clarity for Learning. It shares, but here's like the number one. It shares the voices of educators. I mean, there's teachers throughout, and now I know they're not fake. <laughs> I mean, it's, I right. shouldn't say fake. Yeah. They're, they're not, uh, the names change. They're actually the, the real teachers that you're, you're using, which is really cool. And you not only have their voices, you also have uh, samples of what they're using to help with clarity in the classroom. You have nice pictures and so forth. And you even have uh, other ways of uh, getting information that I think is really cool. Um, and so before I go there, I want to make sure I say this. Uh, how did you come about doing this? I mean, what, what are you hoping it will provide for the reader by having uh, um, having all these voices of the educators and showing exactly what they use? I mean, I, I think, I know this sounds like a no-brainer question, but I th it takes a lot of time and effort right there. Uh, and that was one of the, the delays in getting the book to press, um, but it was one that we were not going to negotiate on. Um, and some of it is, is from our own experience. So Kara is a veteran teacher, um, and I have spent many years in the classroom, and Oftentimes we move from research to practice and that translation falls apart because people need to see what this looks like in their classrooms. They've got to be able to see it to make meaning of it so that they can then form that connection. And so the voices from the field was intended to say, all right, in the last chapter, we told you about all the information related to topic to gaining clarity and unpacking the standards and writing your intentions and success criteria. Now in this chapter, we're going to show you how different teachers in different contexts made meaning of that and how they've implemented it in their classroom. Because the other, the other amazing thing finding that we have, have certainly grabbed a hold of is that how you share your success criteria or how you share your learning intentions and success criteria needs to be in a way that is natural for you and fits the personality and the culture of your classroom which may be fundamentally different from mine, but no less effective. And so people need to see a variety of ways of doing it so that we don't standardize the process of teaching, even if we provide a shared language of the tools that all of us should be using to move learning forward. It's the use of the tools that matters the most and how you make that fit in your context. Very cool. The, uh, you know, it's, it, and it's, I can only imagine, I, how did you go about scheduling with, with the teachers and said, or, or I mean, I, how, how did that even work? I mean, I, I have a hard time envisioning that or I have it, I can envision it, but it's always, it doesn't come out nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so Kara and I spend a lot of time um, in pre-K through 12 classrooms. Um, and, and you mentioned that earlier. That's where most of my time is devoted. I teach at the university, um, but my research is in the field and my work is in the field. And so what happened when we started this project and, and her and I started brainstorming what this might look like, um, and we talked with the editors and we talked with um, people above the editors in the publishing company to say, all right, where, what's the best way to, 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 to put this work out there that also aligns with the goals of, of Corwin, which is to, to be a support for classroom teachers around the globe. And once the project started, we then began to make a list of places we had been or places we were going to partner with schools that might be possible incubators or examples. And so none of them were one and done sites. None of them involved schools or districts where we were in there one day. All of them are, are individuals 
and colleagues where we've been with them for multiple years. And so we let them in on the work. They were part of the conversation. They got to hear what we were thinking. They got to see drafts of the chapters. They got to see drafts of the ideas and give us feedback and then say, ah, I have examples for this, 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 and this. And then Karen and I would meet and talk. And then she'd say, well, I have examples for this, 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 and this. And, and it was a very um, collaborative effort, which is why in the front of that book, the list of acknowledgements is quite extensive because it, it, without those individuals, the work wouldn't be there. I, it just wouldn't be there. That's so excellent. And it, it shines because when you're reading the book, I mean, it's, it, it's just so powerful when you read the different comments from the teachers, when you, when you see them, uh, their, their work and examples of what they're talking about using in the classroom, it just, it's just all, um, comes together nicely. And it's very powerful because you, you get the feel for what it is you're trying to get, um, the reader to understand. And I, and I like that. The, uh, could, could you talk a little bit about the importance of feedback with clarity? Because this is probably if I, I mean, this is my favorite section, I think of the book is the feedback with clarity. So I wanted to tell you, I, I really love this chapter. So can you talk about that just a little bit? It was my favorite chapter to write and work on. Oh, um, cool. and it came together quicker than I had anticipated. Um, and, and I think Carrie would agree. Um, cause we kind of looked at that one thinking we could go down the rabbit hole with feedback. And all of a sudden it just hit. Um, and so to answer this question, I'll try to, to, to be as succinct as possible, but this one's a, a tough one. Um, feedback we often see as at the end, um, you know, we equate it to a grade in public schools. Um, and that, and that's not accurate and not just public schools in anything, your evaluation at work, uh, your performance evaluation on the job, um, your final exam in a college classroom, we tend to equate feedback and grades or feedback and summative evaluation. But actually, feedback is designed to close the gap between where you are and where you're going. The key there is where you're going. If you don't know where you want your learners to go, and if the learners don't know where they're going, then it makes it very hard to provide or even receive feedback that is relevant and will close the gap. If we lose sight of that clarity, then feedback just becomes this mumbo jumbo that the teacher said about my work and I don't know what to do with it, nor do I know why she said it or why he said it, and it becomes meaningless. And so feedback tells us where we're going, how progress is moving towards that goal, and then what do I need to do next to take a step closer to that goal? So the whole discussion about feedback on clarity is how do you use your learning intentions and your success criteria? How do you use your checks for understanding to give learners relevant, timely feedback that helps them take their next step in the learning journey versus just marking up the paper with subjective opinions about the quality of student work? It needs to be much more objective and it also needs to be much more student and learner focused and less grade focused. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, I can remember I think about feedback today and and uh, the, our conversations around it. I always think about some of the feedback I got on uh, on papers like you can do better than this, you know, yep. <laughs> like really? OK, I think I was doing OK. And then you told me I could do better than this or uh, try harder. That's my favorite one. That's uh um, you know, that's uh, thank you. Okay. I'll, I'll keep working at that trying harder thing. What's it yeah. look like? You know, it's no comment there, but Hey, you know, <laughs> and then, hey, you know, go, go to ahead. take the, and, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. 
I was going to take that a step further. That exact comment is one that, that we struggled with um, how to articulate exactly that. Um, because what will happen is that we'll either say try harder or we'll do this. A student will submit a very well-written essay. Then we'll take off 10 points for comma usage. <laughs> yes. Now, I'm not saying comma usage isn't important. But if the use of commas was not part of the success criteria, then you've just blindsided that student. And you have potentially changed that student's mind frames around the learning to be, well, no matter what I do, she's going to whack me with something. Or the student completes the math problems and does exactly what you tell them to do, solve these equations. It comes back and it says minus five, you didn't line up your numbers or show your work. Now, wait a minute. That you didn't tell me that that was the target. And so what it does is it, 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 the feedback with Clarity focuses on two things. Number one, let them know what it is that they're going to get feedback on and what success looks like. And number two, you can say whatever you want to say about what's valued in your classroom. You can stand up in front of them and talk about how you want high cognitive uh, engagement, higher order thinking. I want you to be 21st century learners, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> we, we got all these things, right? Right. <laughs> but if your feedback indicates that all you want is the right answer, a specific response, and you want it on time, your actions are going to speak louder than your words. So how does your feedback provide learners with additional clarity on what you really want them to get out of today. That's so powerful because that's just something that I, I think, you know, a lot of us need, need a little bit more. Ed, um, I started to say a little bit more education. That didn't come out right. I, a lot of us need a, a little bit more training and understanding what is good feedback and how to, how to be clear with that, because that is something that, uh, you know, what is it you're trying to achieve with the feedback? And, and uh, that's so so right on the money. The, uh, you know, throughout the book, you know, I've, I've been talking about the format. I'm going to go into the format again for just a minute. Throughout the book, there are additional resources that the reader can access. And, and in this case, I'm talking about these QR codes that's a, that are really cool. In one case, there's some research. Uh, in, in another case, it's, it's just uh, some more information about what it is that you're talking about. Um, I love this. Can you, can you talk about, did, did one of you just like QR codes or is it that something that uh, someone said, you know, we got to figure out a way of, there's more stuff out there. How do we connect it? I mean, how did that come about? Yeah. So I'm going to, like the Wizard of Oz, we're going to pull back the curtain a little bit. <laughs> um, that was something that, that um, the publisher was moving towards at that time. Um, and um, we had some, some examples that it worked for that. And what you'll notice is that the subsequent books um, – now have QR codes, multiple QR codes per chapter as an additional way to do voices from the field. So you're correct. It provided additional resources, additional examples for people to sink, sink their teeth into, but the QR code also allows it to be um, organic. So let's say the research comes up with a new finding or a new, a new way of thinking about it. Because it's a QR code, we can go in and edit the document. We can go in and edit the video. We can go and provide additional videos and the QR code links them to that versus having to rewrite an entire book because of a new finding. Um, and then the other thing is teachers are, are engaging in their own professional learning through so many different ways or so many different avenues at this point. And videos, uh, as evidenced by John Hattie's micro teaching um, 
effect size. Videos are really, really powerful because they can see themselves doing it or they can see others doing it. And that provides excellent feedback and excellent opportunity for reflection. Um, in the, in the uh, Clarity for Learning playbook uh, that Doug and Nancy um, and Olivia and Joseph were a part of, they provided QR codes with every segment of that book. Um, and so it's, again, it's just our attempt as, um, as a service to the field to make sure we show them what we're talking about so that it doesn't come across as this ivory tower theoretical constructs. These are, these are things that are happening in classrooms that you can do and it's going to have a huge impact. And if you can do them already, reach out because you may become a QR code. So contact us. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. I love it. I, I, you know, it is cool about, you know, there's, there's some really cool stuff with technology today that, you know, just talking about what you just said, being able to update something without, you know, oh my gosh, we're going to do another run and yank out this chapter or do this just so we can update this little part here. And no, Hey, we just reshoot the video. <laughs> you know, yeah, my dream, my dream is, um, and I don't think I'm far off on this dream. I just have to set aside time to do it. My dream would be to have a repository of examples for the stuff, stuff, I don't mean to degrade it, but the things <laughs> that, that we work on, uh, Kara and I, um, might have a, a place for it. Doug and Nancy and the work that we're doing, especially now with our new PLC plus project um, and the visible learning work where educators can come and contribute and take away. And I'm going to say this. And again, I don't mean, I don't ever mean to be disrespectful, but it should be something you shouldn't have to pay for. Right. If I'm a seventh grade social studies teacher and I need ideas for how to do clarity, I should not have to go to teachers pay teachers. I should be able to go to a repository and say, somebody help me. And there should be a community of learners, a professional learning network that says, here, go click on the third tab on this website. And you're going to see all these social studies examples that you can adapt and download. That would be my dream. My dream would be an online repository of the work that we have witnessed. Um, we're not doing it. I, I teach at university. I don't have a seventh grade classroom that we have witnessed in schools that are just phenomenal that need to be shared with the rest of the world. They need to be shared. I love that. I mean, because there's, you know, being able to the community of, uh, uh, of teachers and educators is so huge. And the, the talents that are there, uh, being able to have that to, to share from is just a great idea. Absolutely. The, uh, it, so we're kind of getting close to closing up here. And what I'd like to do is, you know, if, if a teacher administrator were to read Clarity for Learning, what would be something that you would want to make sure that they reread and make sure they understood? They really, truly understood. Um, for teachers, I would say the Clarity problem component, um, because what it does is it provides the relevancy and the why behind it that this is not just another initiative. This actually has things that we, we see in classrooms that we all can commonly share that experience. And so that would be number one would be the clarity problem. For administrators, it would be the feedback chapter um, because what's fascinating is that feedback, effective feedback is not just effective for K-12 learners. How an administrator engages in feedback with his or her teachers determines what that teacher does next. And so for administrators, the feedback part is very important as you go down the clarity journey as an educational leader. For a teacher, it's recognizing 
that the clarity work is aiming to address a clarity problem that doesn't make you a bad teacher because everyone in the universe can relate to that specific part. Excellent. Excellent. The, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I just love the thought of, uh, you know, in a book, if someone really understands, you know, make sure you go back and flag this, take a look at this and just reread this section. I, I think that uh, sometimes can, uh, you know, really help them do that reflection that you talk about earlier and uh, at yeah. the end of it and so forth and say, what did, you know, what was the big deal to me here? So good stuff. The, uh, so before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you, John, where would you send them? Um, I would either send them to, um, they can email me directly at the university. Um, my university email address, um, I answer personally and answer quickly. Um, and so I invite any, anyone to email me. Um, and you can certainly visit my website at um, www.johnalmerode.com. Uh, real original. Um, there's a way to email me there. Um, and, and that's what I would say. Reach out, email. Um, there are times that I'll get text messages from from teachers because I hand out my mobile number um, and they'll say, you know, Hey, you were with us last week in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, can we ask you some questions? Absolutely. Um, and so I would say, check out the website. My email address um, is a little bizarre because it's a university email, um, but it's a L M A R O J T at J M U dot E D U email away. Um, and you can email me as many times as you want. We'll set up a phone call. The point is, are we doing everything we can to make learning um, successful for kids? And so I'll do anything I can to help send resources, talk for hours, whatever I can do to be of help. But be prepared because I'm going to ask questions back like, does this make sense? Would this work in your classroom? What would you do differently? Did we miss something? Is there anything in there that 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 you're dying to tell us that you think we have missed. That's the only part of the bargain I would ask for them to uphold is they better be ready to give us feedback so that we don't have something out there that isn't working. Well, that's a great bargain right there. I got to tell you. So you need to take advantage of that. And by the way, you guys need to know that uh, I'll put the, this information in the show notes so you don't have to try and remember how to spell that and so forth, because it is a rather unique university address. So um, <laughs> the, uh, so uh, just they'll be in the show notes for you to find and uh, be able to connect with John. So, John, thank you for offering that up to him. And I can tell you, he does respond to you because that's how I connected with him and my, my staff member here. So we appreciate that so much. The uh, uh, so here we go. I got two questions that I like to ask my guests. And here's the first one. If you had the chance to talk with 100 brand new teachers, what is one piece of advice you would want to give them about working with kids? Hmm. Um, I'm trying to make this one piece of advice that's digestible. Um, <laughs> and so I would say I would give them one, one word and then follow it up. And the word would be focus. And and keep your eye on the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And that is taking learners from wherever they are and moving them forward in their learning progress. That's your goal. That's your job. That's the main thing is to improve the learning outcomes of students. Those learning outcomes could be cognitive. They could be emotional. They could be social emotional. They could be behavioral. Whatever your outcomes are, your job as a teacher is to make decisions every day that moves learning forward. 
are the learners in your classroom better off at three o'clock than they were at eight o'clock just because they spent time with you? That's the main thing. Don't get distracted by the social club. Don't get distracted by the teacher's lounge. Don't get distracted by the school board policy. Don't get distracted by the textbook adoption. Don't get distracted by, I mean, there's so many things that can pull us away. The main thing is the main thing and stay on it and don't let anything take your destiny and turn it into a distraction. And that would be my advice. Awesome advice. Just awesome advice. Cause there are so many things, like you said, that can take you away from that main thing. And it, it, you don't know when you'll get back to it. If you, if you let it derail you. So good stuff. Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? And I think we kind of got a preview of this. <laughs> if so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Yeah, this is hard. Cause I have trouble doing this without getting choked up. It would be my sixth grade science teacher, without a doubt. Um, Miss Cross, I, I don't know if you've read the book by the Heath brothers uh, called The Power of Moments. Uh, yes. Um, and it talks about why certain things stick in, 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 in us, in our memories, and in, in who we are as a person and why others don't. Um, and every condition that the Heath brothers argue in their research, that night at parents' night at Stewart's Draft Middle School in room 30, it, every criteria was set when I met Miss Cross, and um, she changed my life forever uh, as a teacher, as a person. Um, she's the she's the reason I do what I do. Um, she was the reason I became a science teacher. Um, and so the next part's the fun one. So what would I do if given the chance to say something to her? I get to do it almost on a regular basis. She lives a mile away, and my children call her Grandma Sally. Nice. Very nice. That is awesome. Yeah. That is very so. cool. So thank you so much. I can tell you that I, not many uh, educators, if that end up happening to them as, as the world goes on, that is so cool. Thank you, John. Yep, you are welcome. Yeah, she, uh, it's, it's phenomenal. And, and the cool part is, a little aside, um, she supervises student teachers and practicum students uh, for us at JMU. And so my students will come in and say, we met our practicum supervisor and she said to ask you about, and then there'll be some personal intimate <laughs> detail nice, that nice. I know Sally has told them. I'm like, Oh, you have Miss Cross as your supervisor. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Excellent. That's a, uh, thank yeah. you very much. Yes. That's, yeah. well. The kids love, the kids love grandma Sally. That is so my, cool. My two children love grandma Sally. That is so cool. <laughs> wow. The, uh, well, John, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're an amazing trainer and author. You make learning fun. You know how to make learning, how to help kids learn user-friendly. Your book, Clarity for Learning, Five Essential Practices That Empower Students and Teachers, is an awesome tool, and I encourage all educators, get your copy. <laughs> you need to get your copy. And if you get a chance to hear John speak, don't miss the opportunity because you're going to be engaged. You're going to be excited. You're going to be out of your seat. And you're going to be going, I need to get back in the classroom right now because I got to put this to work right now while it's, while it's happening. Um, John, it was great talking with you. Thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is fun. This is fun. Hey, have you got some thoughts, questions, or ideas? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through my email at stephenmiletto at gmail.com. Stephen spelled with a V and Mileto is M-I-L-E-T-T-O. And that's at gmail.com. Or if you're in the United States or Canada, you can call my Google Voice number at 478-353-5471. Love to hear from you. Thanks. 
Take care now. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.